Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to listen to is an experiment in sound. Dan Deacon uh, is here with us today. Dan, let's hear some music. Hello. Good morning. It'll start in one second. One. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Madcap. I'm Daniel Bloom. Today, we present people and stories representing one of the most unsung and yet creatively rich locations in the USA. It's a place known as Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland. We like it here in Baltimore. There's so much love in Not. This is a 15-year-old Tori Amos singing the song Baltimore, which she co-wrote with her brother Mike and recorded at Track Studios in Silver Spring, Maryland. Our first guest is a man who makes Baltimore his home, who instigates gigantic waves with a speedboat of creativity and straps his audience into water skis for a wild ride behind him. Hello, everyone. My name's Dan Deacon. I'm David Ross. I'm Daniel Bloom. We are the Madcap Podcast, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be speaking to you here at Moogfest. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for speaking with oh, me. Oh, no. No, no. The pleasure's all ours. <laughs> Believe you maybe me. We, maybe we're each having pleasure from We're going to have a pleasure <laughs> off right here in this tiny room. All right. spoke with Dan Deacon this April during Moogfest in Asheville, North Carolina. It's a festival where music, technology, and innovation intersect. And where those tenets collide, when the dust settles, Dan Deacon is standing triumphantly. This is USA 3 Rail from Dan Deacon's latest album, America. grew up in Long Island and I moved out of there when I was 18 I went to college in Westchester New York at the uh, conservatory music at purchase and then moved to Baltimore 10 years ago this month so I read that when you were in college you were studying something different and then you switched to music talk about talk about the state of mind then and like how what was how easy was it for you to, to transition or was it like a lot of stress involved with all this uh, good question um, I was studying political science and drama studies, and both were very depressing to me. Um, And I was, you know, taking out loans, and I didn't want to be in college anyway. I just felt like culturally culturally, uh, obligated to. And um, and I was like, well, and all I was doing in my spare time was writing MIDI. And I was like, well, if I'm gonna go into endless debt and never get a job, uh, I might as well study music, right? So that's what I did. Some friends gave you some urging, didn't they? They did. They did. Say their names, please. Uh, it was <laughs> Dina Kelberman and uh, Keith Abrams. Okay. Okay. How, <laughs> how prolific were you during that time beforehand? I mean, were you like just nightly making? Quite a bit. It was all the time. It was my main, you know, I guess, hobby. Mm-hmm. And But my computer didn't have a, 
the speakers didn't work, so I could only use headphones. So I would go home almost every weekend back to Long Island to use like the house computer. But it was like, this program was called MIDISoft. It was like MS Paint, but instead of like a blank white screen, it was just blank uh, staff that you could like click notes on. So that's how I learned like what chords were, or like triadic harmony. Um, and then eventually I would try to write stuff that would crash my computer. I was like, how much MIDI data can I throw at this software? What is the craziest thing I can write? So that was in like, I don't know, 94 when I started doing that. I was in high, I mean, junior high and then high school and I went to college in 99. And I didn't want to, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to study music. I don't know if I want to make like something that I love a job or but then I was like, oh, I'll never be able to get a job because I'll have a fucking degree in music. It's not going to be like, oh, look at his resume. It's great. Got a degree in music. We're all good. Let's give him a job. <laughs> Were you uh, classically trained on any instruments growing up? I was in the school band. and uh, What did you play? I played the trombone and then the tuba. Those are fun. Fun instruments. They are fun. They are fun. Um I can't stop thinking about this like trombone diplo joke I made in the last interview. It's, it has no context. Doesn't make any sense. Um, go, go right ahead if it's on your mind. We were talking about like uh, uh, controllers and like interfaces for making electronic music, and I kept saying like everything's based on keyboards or tabletop gear, and uh, it'd be awesome if it was. You know, every time like someone makes something where you like strap it to your body, it looks like a guitar. It just it looks weird and awkward. And I was like, but where are these like trombone MIDI controllers? Like, people are like, yeah, I went to that Diplo concert, it was awesome, but where was the trombone? <laughs> um, <laughs> so hopefully that's the direction we're going in. I would like to see a slide whistle controller as well. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, see, I think just go to the next level. Let's do slide trombone. Why not? That's a that's a very silly instrument. I enjoy it thoroughly. Yeah, I mean, you get you, you can have this really fluid pitch control. Um, a lot you can do with it. Future Man from um, Bella Fleck and the Flecktones wears an awesome drum pad. He really pulls it off, though. He also goes by Future Man, and obviously... And he like, made that thing. In the Doesn't Give a Fuck Awards, I believe it's a trophy of him that they give out, right? <laughs> Back to the music program, what did you learn there? Like, what did you not, would you not have known um, had you not gone to that program? I think the most important thing that I took away from it was having, you know, like three years of my life dedicated to exclusively exploring and experimenting with music and sound. Being in that immersive environment, that's the one thing that, not the one thing, but one of the things I really like about academia is that it was like not only important but necessary that I spend hours and hours and hours in my studio. And I think that helps me continue to do that now. Not that you need to go to an institution to instill those mindsets in you, but it's also great to be around like-minded people or um, people that are also experimenting, not even necessarily like-minded. What I liked about Purchase is that even though I was in the music conservatory, they also had like a film conservatory and an art program. So like my girlfriend was a sculptor and my roommate was a filmmaker. And we, I think the three of us really cross-influenced each other a lot. And I think if I was just with other musicians, it would have been very different. And I think that that mindset led to, you know, when we moved to Baltimore and started this collective called Wham City, it was very much not about our aesthetic as much as our individual aesthetic and how that aesthetic is being affected and influenced and also affecting 
the aesthetics of others. Why the move to Baltimore? It was real cheap. Real cheap? Okay. Uh-huh. It, it, it is. <laughs> now, it's getting more and more expensive, but at the time it was it was perfect. From a musician standpoint, it's really centrally located on the East Coast, so you can you know you can get down to Atlanta pretty quick. You can get to Chicago not so bad. You can easily hit New York and be home by the end of the night. And uh, we moved into a 3,200 square foot place, and my rent was 180 dollars a month. And we were having like crazy parties and shows all the time, and it was really fun. Yeah, talk a little bit about, more about that time. I mean, it sounds like a really fertile period that would be really exciting to be a part of. It was. It was like, you know, I guess five of us moved down and then slowly more and more. This is Wham City, named after Dan Deacon's Baltimore-based music and art collective. The song is from the 2007 album Spider-Man of the Rings. But yeah, it had this really great energy. It was the mid-2000s where noise music had really started to bleed into pop music and like experimental pop music was really starting to take form. And I think a lot of it in Baltimore, when there was this real ecstatic sort of attitude. People were really excited and happy and positive and it really fit in with in line with my philosophy and I don't know I think it was a really great right place at the right time and also contributed to that and it feels felt really cohesive and it still feels that way but obviously things change and people get old When did you uh, have your first show? Ever? Yeah. Um, I think it was Valentine's Day 2002 at the Dance Studio B in the Dance Building of Purchase. Pretty sure that's the date. Did that first show have any elements that you recognize in your stage show these days? There was a lot of audience participation. There was I handed out sheets of paper to the audience for things for them to do. Uh, but that was more of like a, like a classical recital. I did one show opening for Cat Power. This was also at Purchase, which is the benefits of going to like a small college where it can be like, oh. And I guess I booked the show, so I put myself on the bill like a true dickhead. Do you prefer the recital format? No, I don't prefer them. They're, ref- they're definitely different. They have their pros and the cons. But uh, I love lunch, but dinner's great as well. <laughs> <laughs> definitely want to speak to you a bit about your stage show. <laughs> about lunch and dinner. Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, favorite sandwich? Um, well, I don't eat these sandwiches. I've got a gluten intolerance. but uh, I see. Unless you want it to smell like I've been eating dog shit. Uh, so are you a salad guy? Well, what's your staple? No, I mean, I, I feel like I just... Rice, I eat a lot of rice. Love these rices. Um, I don't know. I really have a... You know, especially when you're on the road for a while, like, you eat whatever is prepared. 
or you go to the grocery store. Or like Al, my son guy, and I will go to the grocery store and we'll just buy like whole chickens and we'll eat all these chickens. But I'm trying to eat less meat because every time I'm eating, I'm like, oh, you're you're delicious because of misery. <laughs> this is del- so delicious because you have lived a miserable life, and I'm I'm sorry. Mm, beautiful allegory for our country as well. It's true. Uh, back to the stage show. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned handing out instructions to the audience. I've been uh, privileged to see you on a few occasions. And one thing I love about your show that's so unique is that, in my view, not only do you create a unique experience for the audience, but it's almost as if you play the audience as if they are an instrument as I, well. I like to think of the audience as an element in the performance. You can't have a show without an audience. And if you've got this group of people together, you can really create unique environments. This is the audio from a YouTube recording of Dan Deegan's performance at the 2013 Transmodern Festival in Baltimore. It was uploaded by Baltimore Diggables. You can just repeat after me. Help! I'm trapped in all this glue. I covered my entire apartment in industrial glue. I know, I know. You told me not to. It looks so good. So shiny. But of course I fell in it, and I'm trapped in all this glue. And it's so strong that when I try to move my arms or legs, the bone tears away from the muscle. So I'm surely going to die. But that's not why I'm leaving you this voicemail. I want you, after I die, to be the steward of my greatest throne. So after the ceremony, go deep into the vaults. There you will find my prized possession, the Criterion Edition DVD of Austin Powers 3. Gold member. Gold member. Gold member! All right, cool, let's do it. You can work with the space, going inside and outside the space, recontextualizing where the performance take place in the room. Upstairs and downstairs, as you did here at Moogfest. Thinking about all the elements of a performance, especially, like, I hate going to a standing room show and just standing there. Like, why are there not seats if you want me to just fucking stand still the whole goddamn time? If that's not the point, let's move around. Can we split the audience down the middle, all the way down the middle with half of us on this side and half of us on that side over there? Let's get the guy with the headphones waving hello. Can we get you to the center of the, the, center of the area over there? Can we, get, can we get the person clapping? Can we get you out there? Yeah, can we get you? Ladies and gentlemen, our first contestants! So captains, we're gonna have a group interpretive dance that y'all are gonna lead. You guys are gonna be the teams, you guys are the captains. Teams are going to follow their captain's moves exactly as they happen. If they move up, we move up. If they move down, we move down. A hive mind mentality. They the queen bees. We the faithful drones. They the brains. We the bodies. Now, captains, captains, I know this guy's, you seem pretty sauce, but you got to focus here. Always maintain eye contact with your team, so why don't you just rotate and face that team? There you go. Sort of not what I was going for, but whatever. All right, you're going to want to stay as low to the ground as possible, or else you're gonna completely disenfranchise the people in the back and ultimately they'll remote. Teammates, if your captain sucks, and this is true in all aspects of life, replace them with yourself. Captains, 
Try to do movements that look cool when a large group of people do them. All right, Captain, let's slowly touch our hands above our heads, Captains. Dude, you gotta look at your team. Never look at me again. I'll always be thinking about you, though. Remembering those days where we used to look at each other longingly. I think it's working. What? That experience inspires people to certainly remember what it is that you do. And when someone leaves a Dan Deacon show, if they've gotten it, they love Dan Deacon. <laughs> like the, t the, well, word, cool. the word love will be bandied about very often when discussing people who have had the chance to see you. That's great to hear. Thank you. I have, well, I have no idea. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Who inspires you most? Um, Ed Schrader is a big inspiration. He's a awesome musician and performer at Baltimore. She's only laughing every night. Do, 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 do. Check out the halogen and embers. Do, do, do. A tidal wave my friend Brent O'Brien is really inspirational. He's a comedian hustling, doing this DIY comedy scene. In Baltimore? In Baltimore. Okay. All right. Now, I know some guys like to bring just a 6 and a 14 on a job with them, but I say bring one of everything because you never know what you're going to find on a drywalling job. Just the other day, I was on a job and I was finishing up, and out of nowhere, this orb of pure light appears in front of me and starts pulsating like a heartbeat in the center of the room. Now... <laughs> Before you know it, it turns into a loving gray fire that's somehow expanding without moving ever outward until it's interpenetrating not only me and my guys on the drywall job, <laughs> but what felt like every crevice in the universe. Now, <laughs> tell you, I couldn't even know fire glow gray if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. So, just goes to show you, bring one of everything. Because at first I thought the six inch would be good for working with a penetrating orb, but I ended up using a combination of the eight and ten. So bring everything, bring the six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, and the corner knife too. You still just need one mud pan, though, if it's 14-inch. <laughs> All right. I, I really like that scene because it's not foraged yet. It, there's very little, like, getting in a van and driving to towns and playing these, like, basements or parties and doing comedy. I think it's a lot like what music used to be, or still is. But it, now it's a system. It's institutionalized. You can find a house show in any city in the fucking world. Or maybe North America. United States. Uh, East Coast. No, I, anyway, <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, big heavy hitters like David Byrne and Brian Eno. Okay. I'm back revisiting their work a lot. One of the performers that we saw yesterday, Craig Leon. Um, he's actually jamming here at 3. I wish we could stay. But his music and like his career arc is really amazing and beautiful. Like a composer and made really weird electronic music and also like you know produced a bunch of awesome records like produced the first talking heads record and awesome dude seems cool what were your family listening to like 
Uh, my dad's a huge classic rock dude. Lots of Beatles, lots of Kinks, Rolling Stones. Mom was a big Donovan fan. Sunshine softly through my window today. Could have tripped out easy, but I've, I changed my way. What do they think about your career path? Oh, I'm, my dad's psyched. Uh, sure, mom would be psyched as well. My dad, uh, you know, very supportive of it. Okay. This is Madcap, and we're speaking with the experimental musician, composer, and bright light known as Dan Deacon. One more question about the stage show. One thing that impressed me a lot when I saw you in Philadelphia actually was the use of custom app. This is a brilliant idea, and it's. Thank you. I mean, it's smart, and it's surprising almost that other artists haven't picked up on this. Like at one point, um, you send out a tone from your station, and all the cell phones who have that app in the room respond to it. Then you instruct everyone to hold the phones up, screen down, and it becomes a light show. Correct. Boom. If you have a smartphone and you have the Dan Deacon app, if you wouldn't mind firing it up and hitting the "I'm at a show" button, let's see. We didn't put any of this information up because we were building the PA system all day, but if you have it, do you mind holding your phone in the air as high as it can possibly go? For you will be the only light source during this next song, except, of course, for the beautiful stars above and the uh, very expensively run light that the city provides for us. Ah, it's in the folder labeled app, and you hit the damn beacon button, and then you wait for the Wham City Lights app screen to go away that I insisted upon, and now I think it was foolish. And you hit it, and you hit the I'm at a show button, and for some reason your phone gets slower. All right, there we go. So let's see. We're holding them in the air as high as they can possibly get. How many we have this side of the room? Doesn't have many, but that's fine. This side of the room is killing it. Killing it with these apps. Got me apps! All right. We've all got these little devices in our pockets. Let's use them. Yeah, I agree. I really want to start thinking more about what you can do with collective technology. Since so much technology is made for an individual user, but once you change the way you think about it and you... If you got 500 people, you have 300 crazy light, sound, speaker devices. Yeah, so I think that's going to be a big uh, focus in the coming years of my thought life. My thought life. Thought, that's a good term. Um, like, how did that idea come about? Who developed? Who helped you develop it? Like, tell a little bit about that story. I had the idea for a while, and um, I did this TED talk where I had everyone set an alarm on their phone and then like call people in the room and make feedback. Oh yeah. Uh, you'll need your cell phones for this, so if we could all take out our cell phones and turn them on and turn the volume as loud as they could get. And if you don't have a cell phone, good for you. Could we please applaud all the people that don't leave the house with a cell phone or don't own one? Let's set our alarm for 622. I think we'll be safe with 622. And um, I'll serve as the conductor of this piece. Let's... Uh, set our alarms. Our alarms are set. We save them. Our phones are turned all the way up. And uh, I'm going to come down here and join you. Uh, let's consider this the start of the piece. Let us begin.
really fell in love with the spatial element of the sound. And I started thinking like, well, if you could really synchronize these and turn them into one one unit, you could really make these environments that would never otherwise be able to be created. And my friend Keith, former Google programmer, and he, he and I teamed up and we started a, we made it and then we started a company and now we license it to people all over the world. What's the company called? The company's called Wham City Lights. Beautiful. Keith's last name is? Keith Lee. Keith Lee. Big up. Big up Keith yeah. Lee. Red dude. What are your methods of collaboration? How do you work with others? Um, I'm shitty. I'm a shitty collaborator. <laughs> uh, that's why I largely work as a solo artist. I don't know. It depends on the nature of the collaboration. I think my longest running collaborator is Jimmy Joe Roche, who is a filmmaker and sculptor and also a musician. Here's a song named after that frequent collaborator, Jimmy Joe Roche, from 2007's Spider-Man of the Rings. What's the longest you've sat on a production? Oh, years. Like there's tracks I've that I'm like, oh, this, this needs a little bit more time. There's probably a track that I wrote in college that I finally feel like I might put on the next record. I I just never really found a place for it and didn't think it would fit in like the context of the other tracks. But I think it's, so I guess long, long time. So you're heading back to the studio. Um, what is inspiring you at this moment? What are you excited to go and work on? These tracks, I don't know how to describe it. I've got my own studio now. So it's not like a time limit thing, although I'm setting a time limit. So it's not just like, I can do it whenever. What's up, Game of Thrones? So yeah, I'm just excited to really dive in there. I want to work a lot more with hardware now that I have space to do it in. Really explore the voice. Most of my records are the voice is very much an afterthought. I'd really like to work with my own voice and other singers. And yeah, I guess that's it. And and making, a, I guess, the best record I can possibly make. Good luck with that. We'll be looking forward to checking it out. Who do you consult for peer review? I guess my crew, Al Schatz and Patrick McMinn, are my two uh, closest advisors. They're really good at uh, encouraging and also letting me know, like, dude, that's fucking stupid. (laughs) Which I think is always important. If you ever get to the point where people are don't like let you know that your decision is faulty, you're gonna start going down the wrong road. Critique is the most important, I think, the most important thing that an artist can have and actively needs. And it needs to be critique that's not commercial. Like a review or the media critique is, sure, it's valid in some sense, but a peer critique, I think, is ultimately what I benefit from the most. I just wanted to speak to you a little bit about the, you know, the the spread of technology and easy availability of music production software, let's say, has blown down the doors in terms of access for being able to make music certainly in the 21st century but really since the rise of like laptops and things like fruity loops but to me that opens up an even wider space for artists like you who think very deliberately and deeply about what you are doing that's a really optimistic way of looking at it sounds great (laughs) i mean do you agree i mean has it it gotten harder for you to make an impact or do you feel like you're you're standing out even more now that there's so much out there i don't know i don't know if i think about it in those terms i definitely recognize the privilege that i had getting exposure when i did i feel like the game has changed quite a bit like i came up in this like wild west time of the internet when like information was still sort of scarce like 
like when my first record came out, MySpace was more popular than Facebook. Speaking of that first record, this is an absurd piece of spoken word called Drinking Out of Cups that I simply had to sneak into this piece. It's from Dan Deacon's debut album, Meetle Mice, released in 2003, and the video for this song has over 18 million views. It's damn funny, and you can check it out at madcapdc.org. Woof from Dan Deacon's 2009 album Bromst. I mean, I just keep wondering, like, is art going to exist? Like, are we going to keep having artists? Are people going to care about something that someone else made? Or are they just going to be really into what they're making? Are people going to make their own entertainment and music? I largely do that. I listen to music that I'm making as I'm making it. And then when I'm done, I make something else. Is that going to be what happens? And I don't think so. Because people could always, you know, if that was the case, people just, you know, before electronic music, they would have been just making their own guitar music or making their own piano music whatever or vocal music and a lot of them did but I think since we're in this like ramping up of technology especially disposable technology I feel like you're gonna find maybe people will be more a greater return to like virtuosic performers the more I think about it like you know while it's easier to make electronic music it's always been just as easy to make music anyone could have picked up a pencil and started jotting notes on a page or sitting in a piano or just sitting in their room and singing it's how you share it and since you share it with a computer and a lot of people make the music on the computer I feel like that's why computer music is the you know the modern folk music I think the one thing that is going to change is you're going to see less and less young kids like picking up guitars and playing guitars and they're going to be flocking towards MIDI controllers or laptops yeah I mean I think you've already seen that oh 100% but I think that's going to have an influence on what exists. Do you know what I mean? Like right now, everything that's like, these are made for guitarists. And these are not. But these are like, you know, these are sold in Guitar Center. And these you buy like a boutique shop. That's going to change. You're going to stop seeing like companies being like, oh, well, we have to make it for the guitar-based audience because that's where all of the money is. It's going to be like, no, we have to make this for the computer musicians or electronic musicians people born what 20 years ago are just as old as in utero so when they were like 13 they nirvana stopped being a band 13 years ago i think that's a big 
mind fuck for anyone in their late 20s or early 30s. <laughs> she has me like a Pisces when I am weak. I've been locked inside your heart shaped box for weeks. I've been drawn into your magnet. You mentioned disposable entertainment, disposable arts. You know, it seems to me now that the live performance has become a much more important part of the, the music business because it's so much harder. I mean, physical media is dying out as a mainstream consumed product. I mean, you still have vinyl and you still have... Yeah, but I think shit like Snapchat's going to change that. I think, I, and this is going to sound crazy, but Snapchat and Flappy Birds are like two of the craziest things in my mind. Like Flappy Birds is awesome. Because dude made a limited edition app and didn't tell anyone and then did it and stopped. And now people are like buying iPhones with Flappy Birds on it for like hundreds of fucking dollars. That's crazy. The idea of scarcity in a digital world is something that I think people have been wanting for so long but didn't don't know how. And I think this is it's starting to occur. And with scarcity comes value? With scarcity comes value and with scarcity comes... Um, I don't know. I don't know, but like endless abundance is very different from scarcity. Do you know what I mean? Obviously. And it's going to change the way people, if, if you are listening to a song that you know you can only listen to once or it's, it expires, that's a radically different concept than how music has existed prior to that. But that's what a live performance is. A live performance is I'm at this thing and it's going to start and it's going to end and it's only going to happen here. And now, since technology can be controlled like that, I think you will start seeing this scarce, time-based, you know, floating, appearing, disappearing-based content. So I hope this next question isn't too difficult. If you could compile a list into 10 songs that, that represent Dan Deacon's spirit, everything about you, mm -hmm. what would they be? My songs or other people's songs? Whatever. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. 10? Yeah. It's a lot of songs. <laughs> you you well, can reduce it to five. We'll, <laughs> we'll accept any answer. I'd probably start with uh, Terry Riley, uh, Rainbow and Curved Air. Really love that piece and uh, super inspirational and I pull from it a lot. Songs like 20 minutes. Can't we just go with that one? Why not? <laughs> that works. Um, have you ever noticed anybody at your show wearing Google Glass? I have. That seems to be an interesting opportunity, perhaps, as that becomes more prevalent, that perhaps that's another technology you'd be able to incorporate in your show. I think glass is going to be like what the Newton was. 
it's going to be a long time before wearable tech like has a real culture fit. I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing like a room full of people all saying, hello, glass, glass, open this glass. Do that. I want to see a little tiny version of what I'm looking at. Obviously, it's a step and, you know, they want to put this shit in our eyeballs or directly into our brains. And I don't know. I don't, maybe I'll be at that point in my life where I want to be, you know, alone in the woods learning how to make arrows to protect myself. Or I'll be like, yeah, put these fucking computer chip contact lenses in me. Let's let's go wild. I know these questions are getting kind of broad, but you're, not, you're, you're like a thinker. And we wanted to ask you about <laughs> some big questions. Well, thanks. Do you think technology has changed politics? And if so, how? Oh, 100%. I mean... That's kind of like a ridiculous question. I mean, like, helicopters fucking technology. Shit changed the scope of the Vietnam War. Okay, digital technology. Uh, yeah. I mean, you do mean like the flow of information, like the internet? Yes, yes. Yeah, of course. I mean, look at how quickly you can destroy or propagate a political candidate just by a series of memes. You know, people talk about how, like, the Republican Party doesn't have, like, a grasp on social media, but I think that's complete bullshit. I feel like you wouldn't have – the same way that you wouldn't – you needed Twitter and social media for like Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street. It's the same for the Tea Party. Like that shit creates these environments where people can communicate their philosophies and to refine and envelop and connect and spread those philosophies the same way you do music. And obviously big business knows that since they are the way of which that information is transferred and since big business buys and controls all the political content that we get to see as a public certainly certainly changed it true thrush from the album america by dan deacon You mentioned Occupy, and I know you performed at Occupy Wall Street. Um, what impact do you think that can have in terms of, if not having a lasting impact as far as organizationally, at least being an inspiration that there is a breath of fresh air still possible in this society? I think it's you know, great to see so many people realizing that it's a rigged game and that shit's fucked, and most importantly, that we are a part of it. That you can't just like be like, I hate this system. That like there is no system without people within it. Obviously, something's going to have to change. I don't know if it's going to like get to the point where like I don't. You get like a infection on your finger and you hope it goes away and then it doesn't. You have to take care of it. Or if you don't, you have to cut off your whole hand. I feel like that's sort of the way things work. It's like you, a lot of people in the country are comfortable being completely fucked over. But once that comfort turns into discomfort and that turns into pain, I think that's when things are going to change. And unfortunately, I think that's going to be a really awful change unless people start embracing like, oh, I do need to realize that I'm a part of this system and I can actively change that. Do you know what I mean? Like all of these studies coming out being like, well, the United States is obviously an oligarchy. There's no way it's a democracy. Um, 
pack the bong. Let's do it. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's more and more just like, are we going to just read that and be like, oh, bummer. Oh, what's this clickbait like? I can't believe they wore that there. That's crazy. I think the next coming decades are going to be really uh, horrifyingly interesting. Woof Woof from Dan Deacon's 2009 album, Bromst. What role does the arts and artists play in trying to move ideas forward into a broader consciousness? Well, that's a great question, because a lot of pop-based music is really about distraction and escapism, which is fine. But if that's all that exists, then you're, you're missing out on a whole aspect of what culture is and was. But it's dangerous. Like I really think if my record wasn't called America, it would have been perceived differently. And I think if I didn't attach political ideology to it, it wouldn't have disenfranchised people who didn't agree with my political ideology. And I think a lot of people who make music make music to try to make people feel... Obviously, I make music. I want people to feel good listening to my music. But if you think of it exclusively as like a product in your demographic or like trying to reach the widest throw of people, I feel like you're... Um, I don't know just making candy do you know what i mean candy's great love candy but uh you can't only have candy you can't only have superficial you can't only have distractions you can't only go on vacation so and i feel like a lot of modern music especially in the quote-unquote scene i don't know turns a blind eye to like oh yeah you know it's just we don't talk about our politics and our shows and whatever but it's just a lot of that. And you look back at like some of the most influential music of the last century. Look at the impact that music and performance and the arts had on the Vietnam War. And now look at the body of work that revolves around the ongoing wars that were in. There's very little. And that's why I like seeing a band like Pussy Riot so inspiring. But then other musicians just attack, like, yeah, that's cool. I'm, I support that rather than like, doing anything similar but you take a great risk especially like you know a lot of media makes their money by selling ads to these large corporations that if you shit talk on or if you say like i don't agree with the libertarian ideology and they're like oh well i'm a libertarian and i run these super fucking important things go fuck yourself i don't know if that necessarily happens but it's very you don't have to worry about that when you're just like oh i made an electronic music record it's fun other than, oh, I made electronic music, it's fun, and it also is like a critique of the uh, American way of life. That's a very different set of like things that a reviewer can be like, well, fuck this. Just to be clear, I'm not comparing myself to John Lennon, but you look at John Lennon's most active political time period, and reviewers are really fucking harsh on him. And you wonder what how that plays into this because it is it's important to remember that it is a industry and there are barons of the industry well you might as well compare yourself to john lennon because he's not around anymore (laughs) and we we need artists like you who are willing to step out and say this is not as you say just candy it seems fun to be an artist and to be playing shows and i'm sure that it is but when we're talking about these deeper issues, it's also a responsibility that you understand that you have the ability to communicate important issues through 
things like music or art that are enjoyable and interesting to experience. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Please keep doing it. <laughs> we should have known that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. Oh, no problem. Thank you, guys. This has been amazing. We wish you well in your career. You guys as well. Thanks so much for having me. Dan Deacon is a musician, composer, and performer whose latest album is titled America, which contains this song, Pretty Boy. He's performing at Adelaide Hall in Toronto on May 29th and the Howard Theatre right here in Washington on June 5th. For more information on these performances, to hear music, and to find him on social media, visit dandeacon.com. Special thanks to Dan Deacon, to Amanda at Magnum PR, and to Emmy Parker of Moog Music for making this possible. This is Madcap, the Baltimore episode, and our next guest is Tom Grassler, a devotee of heavy metal music and a documentarian whose debut film is about the genre's biggest independent festival, Maryland Death Fest, which takes place in downtown Baltimore this weekend. Uh, my name is Tom Grassler. And what is the name of your film? The film is called Welcome to Death Fest. Welcome to Death Fest is an excellent film. I commend you for it. Thank you. And it refers to an event known as Maryland Death Fest. For those who don't know, please give a thumbnail view of what Maryland Death Fest is. Okay, so Maryland Death Fest is the biggest independent heavy metal extreme music festival in North America. And I qualify it that way because there are larger metal festivals and there are you know larger music festivals for sure. Specifically, which makes this the largest of its type, is that an independent metal festival means that there is no corporate sponsorship. So there's no, you know, there's no Red Bull sponsorship. There's no magazine sponsorship. There's no beer sponsorship. This means that all of it is done on ticket sales. And the fact that they have five and 6,000 people every day in a downtown city environment is absolutely massive. It's taken us this long to mention the names of Evan Harding and Ryan Taylor. But these are the two crucial figures and co-founders organizers of Maryland Death Fest. Can you just say a couple of words about how important these guys are to this community and what they've done? Man, these guys continually blow me away with their level of commitment and professionalism. Basically, they've single-handedly made this this festival. It started its first year was like a couple of nights in a bar and these were two dudes that were like working at uh they were short order cooks at a pizza shop. Evan and I used to work crappy kitchen jobs back well, 10, 10, 11 years ago. I was 18, 19, and Ryan was 21. We were standing around bored at work one night, and the blueprint for the fest uh, was written on the back of a menu. I guess the main inspiration was at, uh, you know, after we went to Ohio Death Fest. I remember driving back. I don't know how it came up, but we just started talking about it on the on the drive back and we said you know, why not why not try and do something better they were just dudes and they're like i bet we can pull something off and they've taken that diy ethic and they've stuck with that and they've basically made it bigger and bigger every single year and they work year round to make this thing happen and the the thing that's really interesting is at any minute they could just take a big fat buyout you know they some people offer them money i don't want to divulge names but you know there are 
there is certainly interest in taking this festival larger and bigger and just accepting money from from corporate sponsors. And every year they turn that money down. And I think that that's a it speaks to the community that they're trying to serve. Mm-hmm. That they basically know, all right, we could take a bunch of money from you know whatever drink company and not, just not have to worry about this anymore and just give our name to it, sign a bunch of papers, let everybody else do it. But instead. They do it on their own. They're booking the hotels. They're booking the flights. They're dealing with, like, the Norwegian diplomat's office, <laughs> like, for real, to make sure that, like, like dudes the, are getting there. Like, their the names... Con- the consulate. <laughs> dude, their names are on the the visas of bands coming over from, like, Finland. They're the sponsors. They have relationships yeah. with consulates in all these Nordic countries. <laughs> That's like, fantastic. These guys just... they To me, they encapsulate, you know, what I think is really beautiful about the DIY community is this idea that like, yes, you can do it yourself. And sometimes it's really, really hard and it can be incredibly frustrating. And sometimes it's not very rewarding, but they do it and they do it every year. And despite, you know, whatever, you know, hardships come their way, they keep, they keep coming back for more and they keep delivering to their community. You and your production partner, Alicia Lozano, uh, worked together on this film with a small crew. So how did you develop the idea for this film and how did you implement actually getting the permission and going about filming it. Well, Alicia is a is a good friend of mine and this entire project would be completely, you know, it, it wouldn't have happened without her without her participation. And it was an idea that that we'd been kicking around for a little while. We hadn't really worked in a professional capacity together. She um, is a reporter for WTOP. She's actually the editor of their entertainment section and we were just buds and um, you know, I worked at this production company and had access and uh I had access to the equipment and I had access to the editing suite and all this stuff. And I'd been producing for a couple of years. So she was friends with uh, with the guys, Ryan and Evan, just from being in the metal community and, you know, having friends of friends. Now, let me just talk about for a minute the very beginning of this film, because you have like a little intro, which kind of gives a flavor of what's to come. And then things calm way down Mm -hmm. and you go to the suburbs of Baltimore and you're showing... Evan Harding's grandparents' house, where they basically have the unofficial headquarters of Maryland Death Fest. All the merchandise is there, stacked up in a room, in which I also believe I noticed a church organ. Yes. And that is because Evan's grandfather... I have been a pastor most of my life of First Church of God of Baltimore. If you take the the vocals away from it and take the distortion away, it's not too far off from like uh, classical or something. It isn't as, as negative about life as I thought it was. That it's it's a way of saying, a, a way of trying to describe what life is about, what reality really is. And that, that it helped, has helped me to learn that anyway. Needless to say, it isn't, it isn't the kind of music that usually fits into a, a church, uh, church situation. One of the things that we were trying to, to set out was to kind of break through these stereotypes, be it the metal community, in this case, be it, you know, what you think of a pastor. I think that this film was extremely successful in that regard. 
Thank you. It ended up being many kinds of films all wrapped up into one. Partially, it was a concert documentary because mm-hmm. you got to see a lot of really cool footage of bands playing and the crowd really enjoying it. It was also a drama. And then you have this more intimate portrait of people and, as you said, breaking stereotypes and probably the most compelling part of the entire film, the part that I circled in my mind and said, oh, this is the heart of the film, is spoken by Matt Pike of the band Sleep. Yes. Who says... And I think music like this, as dark as it is, has a good soul. Because you're being creative out of some sort of horrifying thought or, you know, some darkness that resides in all of us that we need to get out in the open air and talk about because obviously our society has some sort of way of bringing the worst out in people. I really understand where he's coming from and I know what he's speaking to. It's that, you know, everybody that gets into heavy metal at some point, they're in it for for the way that it makes you feel. And for a lot of people, it's a release. It's an escape from daily life. I know that, you know, when I was a kid, like growing up in the suburbs, I was just generally dissatisfied with my lot in life. And heavy metal, you know, I wasn't into sports when I was a kid and, you know, it gave me this sense of belonging that I'm like, all these kids at this Catholic school that I go to, they all suck and they think they're so cool, but I've got this other thing and it's called Metallica and there are 60,000 people chanting, die, like all at once. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, there's this other cooler thing that is bigger than myself. And I think that for a lot of people, it is about something bigger than yourselves. You mentioned your upbringing and you coming to this music as a kid and you have an amazing group of kids that you show in this film from... Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. I'm going to put a clip of these kids right here. First time in America for 16 me. 16 hours straight driving for me. From Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, buttfuck middle of nowhere. I'm going to drive back. Yeah, this is a new experience for all of us, but it's like, it's a welcoming one. The metal scene where we're from is shit compared to this. This fucking amazes me. Yeah, like you'd never see this many long hairs where we come from. You know? <laughs> like, like you come down here and everybody's a long hair and you know, it's, you feel at home. It's fucking great. I fucking love it. It's music that comes right from emotion, whether it's anger or sadness or happiness or whatever it is, people are writing about what they feel. Yeah, it's something that's felt. It's something that's really bigger than yourself. Metal is love. Metal is life. Metal is everything. Metal is the only thing that fucking matters in this world. My whole paycheck is going to this. Yeah. And even then, I gotta pay her back. Yeah. yeah. yeah we're, we're paying her back afterwards. Yeah. This is actually my favorite part of the whole film. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I see myself in these kids. I probably wasn't as brutal as these dudes are. Like, they're clearly, like, extreme, awesome, dedicated fans. What I loved about these kids was the fact that they found something that was so important to them that they're willing to drive. They were taking turns driving. Like, it was, like, 16 hours each driving at something like 32 to 40 hours to, to get from Saskatchewan to where they are. That there is this thing, like, a beacon of light half a continent away that just draw them there like like moths to the flame. And I thought that that was so fascinating that these kids are like, this is the most important thing to me. Where I come from, I'm weird. I get here and I'm not weird anymore. This is like a big family. They're getting something that they're not getting at home in their own community. And I just think that, that, is, that that's really, really fantastic. 
One of the other things that I also think was really great is that specifically there's a young girl that's into metal that yeah. a lot of people think that heavy metal is a boys club and she was the most articulate one out of all of them. And she's paying their way. And she's paying their way. I'm like, dude, you got to get out of these types of relationships. I want to tell her when she's young. Like, you can't keep paying for these jokers. You'll be doing it your whole life. <laughs> but it's probably worth it for her to have this crew yeah, you know, at this point. They, they'll probably remember this experience for the rest of their lives. You no, know, I'd, I'd hope so. And I would love, if we could ever track those kids down again, I would absolutely love to have another conversation with them. And I don't know if they've had a chance to see it. Now, Maryland Death Fest 2014 mm-hmm. is this weekend. Yes. This show will be heard for the first time on Friday. Oh, great. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if folks are interested... They can head on up to Baltimore or to Baltimore from wherever they're listening to this and go check out a very interesting festival. Yes. Now, when I say interesting, I mean in terms of the music, in terms of the culture and the attendees. And one of my personal favorite parts of the metal community is the band names, Tom. Yes. I've just written down a few (laughs) that I'd like to share with our audience. Mm -hmm. The following bands, and I, I could not make these up if I tried. These are some of the bands that will be playing at 2014 Maryland Death Fest. We're going to start with Bird Flesh. <laughs> I'm unfamiliar with Bird Flesh. Which is a, it's a great name. There's over 100 bands playing at Maryland Death Fest this weekend, man. That's terrific. And on four different stages, mm-hmm. this thing is going to be huge. Excruciating Terror. Yes. They're fun for the whole family. Inquisition. Inquisition. Because nobody expects the Inquisition. So Inquisition is uh, is really, really interesting. They're a Colombian black metal band. Really? So these guys grew up in Colombia. And, um, not Columbia, Maryland. Not Columbia, Maryland. <laughs> um, they grew up in Columbia, the country, and a lot. They say that a lot of their influences come from the fact that they grew up around a lot of gang violence and a lot of uh, like FARC violence. Yeah. Extinction of Mankind. <laughs> Putting a pretty fine point on that one. Yeah. Uh, which we all have to worry about, of course, with global warming. Yeah. Goat Torment. <laughs> and I am hoping that the uh, Humane Society will turn a blind eye to any potential yeah. goat goat torment. If I like. had to guess, I'd say Goat Torment is Brutal Death. <laughs> Great. Which is a genre. A genre. Brutal Death is a genre of music. Good. And my personal favorite, which is a word that I had to look up. I didn't, I've never heard this word before. It's a verb, and it is ulcerate. 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 Um, it's a big deal that ulcerate is actually playing. Is um, it? Yeah. And ulcerate means to develop into or become affected by an ulcer. Yes. For all the information, including a full listing, visit MarylandDeathFest.com. And your film, Welcome to Death Fest, you can find information there at DeathFestDoc.com. Dot squarespace.com. You can also find more information on Twitter at DeathFestDoc. And Tom Grassler, my guest, can be found on Twitter at Tom Grassler. That's T-O-M-G-R-A-H-S-L-E-R. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Madcap. Congratulations on your film. Welcome to DeathFest, and best of luck. Thank you so much. Can we hear a little example of your growl? Can we hear your metal growl? So the death growl would be more like... Can you, like, do a growl that says Madcap? Madcap. Madcap is produced by Dan Bloom, David Ross, and Afim Shapiro. Madcapdc.org, on Facebook and Twitter, at MadcapDC. Madcap.